Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, we have a lot of stories that we've talked about on this podcast in the past that we need to come back to and catch up on. And so we're going to do that today. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, we have got a lot to talk about today, so we need to we need to dive in here pretty quick. But first and foremost, how are you? I'm good. Um, I have my, my cup of coffee here. There's not much else on my brain this morning other than the sports in front of us and the coffee in front of me as I attempt to wake up. Yeah, it, I'm won't, not gonna... it won't really happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm here at least in spirit. It's the attempt that matters, John. It is. It's about the thought, as we'll discuss with Kenobi later. It is the thought that counts. (laughs) John, this might be one of the most disorganized episodes of the podcast we've ever done, just because there's a bunch of different places that we're going to go. There's there's no common theme, so we're just gonna let's just jump right in. Um, Current events is where we're going to start. A couple stories here, John. First off, uh, we wanted to talk a bit more about the live golf because. Obviously, the U.S. Open is going on right now, and the you know this is kind of the first time that the Live and the PGA Tour players have been together since this tour started. Um, we talked about this on the last episode of the podcast, but you asked me a question that um, threw me off guard at the time. I didn't have an answer for you at the time, and so I wanted to come back to that. So why don't why don't mm-hmm. you kind of ask the question again, and I'll and I'll I'll get a second chance at redemption here. Yeah, yeah. So, so as a golf, as a golf noob, as someone who doesn't really know anything about the backstory of the golf, like world, I guess I've been curious. People like Phil Mickelson, in kind of attacking the PGA Tour and saying why they're willing to leave for live golf, have kind of basically said that the PGA Tour isn't doing enough for them, has been leveling a lot of accusations, basically saying that, like, they're leaving... Phil has specifically said that he's leaving to get leverage on the PGA Tour for perceived wrongs, basically, for ways that the PGA Tour is mismanaging the way it treats players, the way it gives out prize money. But I'm, I've just kind of been curious, like, how has the golf... How has the PGA Tour in particular gotten to the point where it has that perception among players and what if anything is it doing to change that i guess yeah this is a really really good question um and i didn't have an answer for you last time i had a partially correct answer and i I think last time i talked about phil mickelson particularly was was concerned about media rights and right i've my research has concluded that for him that is the primary thing that's what phil has talked about he's talked about how the PJ Tour has like twenty billion dollars in video files, like right, like rights to to players' video that they don't give to the players. He talked about having to pay a million dollars during the match. You know the the celebrity match tournaments that TNT has done. Mm-hmm. He said that he had to pay a million dollars each time to get the rights to his shots. There, he's talked about how the PGA has not invested in miking up players and caddies like on the course to to enhance digital you know content and be more lucrative and so like for him that seems like the thing and that's consistent mm-hmm. with his brand as he's you know gone into like the TikTok world and doing more videos you know one of the bigger things that we didn't talk about last time is the fact that like this should have been a coming out party for Phil kind of late in his career he should be really at the height of his popularity you know having won the PGA Championship at age 50 you know he was really like before this like as loved as he's ever been in his career and this you know the u.s open is the one tournament well the one major he's never won and so this you know really should have been a time that the whole golf world was coming together hoping he gets that and um he's kind of like self-destructed that as we talked about last week but for him part of that imaging was his increased social media presence him viewing himself as a as a media person and so that was a big deal for him but other players who have you know not joined live tour but have still talked about the flaws of the PGA Tour, have talked about other things. Ricky Fowler talked about how like the live tournament format is actually better. And we talked about how they have a 54-hole no-cut. And, and we didn't talk about they also have shotgun start, which means that every player starts at the same time on different holes, as opposed to everyone starting 10 minutes apart from one hole. Um, and you know he likes that better. Pat Perez talked about how there should be guaranteed money for everyone. He's, he suggested $250,000 a year for every PGA Tour player. Um, he, he mentioned, he didn't say the name, but he mentioned a player that he knew who was 
had his PGA Tour card and only made $22,000 in an entire season because he didn't play well. You know, that, that's, 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 that's not a lot of money, you know, by, by any metric. That's really, really bad. Um, the that's fact, actually really surprising to me. Yeah. The fact that, like, the fact that you get nothing for missing cuts. You get zero money. Um, and mm-hmm. so for, you know, this guy didn't play well. He, he played, you know, he had a full PGA Tour season and only made $22,000. It's crazy. And then Pat Perez also mentioned investing in the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, which is kind of like the minor league system for the PGA. And he talked about how if you make the cut but then finish last in the Corn Ferry Tour, you only make $4,000, which, again, like, this is money that really, like, for these kind of athletes, with, with you know, they have to pay their own travel, they have to pay for their caddies, they have to pay for a bunch of different things. That's not really, like, livable money. And so um, those are just a few of the things. What the PGA Tour has done to fix them, they've increased um, the, the money for like the PGA Championship. They, they, they increased the winnings to $20 million for the winner instead of like, I think it was like $16 million. Um, they've, they've considered doing some like team format things. They've considered making some calendar changes. So I think the PGA Tour is in talks with players to adapt some of these things. But I think it was important to clarify why some of these players might be looking at something different. And particularly, you know, like if you're the guy who made $22,000 and then Live Golf offers you, you know, $50 million guaranteed, you know, I, I don't judge him for taking that, right? We, we judged Phil, I think, rightly because of how much money he made in his career. But I didn't know that there were PGA Tour golfers who made less than a year than I did. Like that, that's right. crazy to me. Yeah, I guess I'm curious, is there, I don't know, I guess, like, the financial outlay of, like, the, I guess, like, the financial situation of the PGA Tour, but do they have the money to be increasing across the board the amount of money that all it's, all their players are making, like, or is it, like, they can't afford to? Because in that sense, they're almost, like, my fear would be that Liv would basically just be able to outbuy them eventually. Yeah, this was the first, uh, I think 2020 was the first year that the PGA Tour publicly disclosed their budget to their players. They haven't disclosed it to the general public, but the players at least know what the budget is. Um, I don't know because they have not disclosed that information to the public, like what their revenue is and how much, like what percentage of that goes to players. You know, Phil Mickelson's accusation was the PGA Tour is greedy. And I think there is a general unrest among players that they are being underpaid. But the PGA Tour is attempting, at least according to players who have seen the budget, to be more transparent. And based on the fact that they have changed the the winning structure to increase the winnings, that's obviously a step in the right direction. But again, one of the criticisms there is that most of the increased revenue that they've given to the players have been at the top. So you get more mm-hmm. money for winning. You, you, there, there still are many tournaments where you get nothing, zero dollars for a missed cut. And that's really like not going to work as a long-term structure. You know, I like the idea of having a guaranteed, you know, if you if you have a full PGA Tour card, you get a guaranteed salary. You know, maybe that's contingent on how many events you play, but it should not, that shouldn't be based on how well you play. I think that's an interesting idea. I think that is interesting because unless they're playing other like smaller tournaments, I guess, like, can you imagine a PGA tour golfer like just working a random side job <laughs> while competing on the tour like just to like make ends meet i'm sure that's what they have to do but yeah pat press said this guy had to you know this this anonymous pj tour had to like get a loan for ninety thousand dollars just to make ends meet because he had to you know he had to oh, pay wow. had to pay his caddy had to pay for housing had to travel every week mm-hmm. you know all of that is on the player and so this guy actually suffered pretty severe financial losses for as a PGA Tour player, and that's the you know that's unacceptable. That's that's a bad look for the tour. They should that should not be happening. Right. Yeah, that's that's wild, and it's, it I guess it gives a little bit of context of even if even if we don't support you know overall people's decisions to take the money coming out of live, it puts those decisions I think in a little bit more perspective. You know, especially especially for players whose careers. You, even who used to be good but whose careers are struggling now like it makes sense that you know if you've kind of tailed off you're like oh well I can still make money over here yeah it also made me think about like the idea that 
you have to have a certain like we have to consider someone's financial freedom before we judge them for making a moral or immoral like a before we judge them on the morality of their financial decisions like you have you know you have to be at a certain like threshold of financial freedom before we can say okay you don't need to take that money but for someone who's taking like losses or for someone who's at the corn ferry tour like i i really can't hold that decision against them if they if they went to, to 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 take something that would set their family apart the problem with someone like phil or some of these other players is that they already were set apart for the rest of their lives for the rest of their children's lives but for right. some of these guys that is a distinctly different and more nuanced conversation yeah i mean i was reading an ap story about how uh recruiting from college will be a big move that live starts mm-hmm. making um because you, the amount of money that you can make right off the bat out of college if you move over to live is obviously way more than you would make on the corn ferry tour or you know trying to like make your mark in the pga tour you know would would you reach the same level of prestige you know in grinding your way to the top of the pga tour that you would would you reach the same amount of prestige at live that you would you know making your name at the pga tour probably not but you know the the financial almost guaranteed impact that you'd have in comparison is like it's not even comparable yeah before i know we need to move on before we do i just want to say that like this week's tournament this u.s open is going on right now has never been more golf has never been more interesting because there's never been such a clear line between hero and villain in terms of the Mm -hmm. way people are viewing the sport it's incredibly fascinating to to see like how these lines have been drawn uh my favorite player and golf my favorite golfer not named tiger woods is roy mcelroy who has kind of become like the hero of golf um in terms of like what he said about the live tour but also like he won last week's rbc heritage which was his 20th pga tour win and uh which in getting his 21st he surpassed uh, greg norman who was the chairman of live tour and you know, immediately after winning in his uh, post-game interview, he was asked how it felt to win, and he said, uh, "This one feels really good. It's my 21st PGA Tour win, one more than somebody else." So clearly, like <laughs> all of this has been on his he's mind. He's beefing, bro. He's yeah. beefing. He, he's using this as a motivation, and right now he's also tied for first through the first round of the of the U.S. Open. So. Roy McIlroy is living his best life, and I think the entire golf world is kind of rallying behind him in a cool way. And he's never won a major, right? No, he has. He has. He has. Okay. He's never won the Masters. He, oh, gotcha. Yeah, he he has uh, he has multiple majors. He actually he I think has he it, might have. Has this, it been a while since he's won a major? Um, maybe. I think it probably has, but I and, think it's been I yeah, think it's been it's like been seven or eight years. Something like and that. the Masters yeah. has eluded him, which always comes up gotcha. every April because he really wants that one. Right. Just like you, just like Phil really wants the U.S. Open, but after his mm-hmm. eight over par first round, this will not be the year for that. Well, uh, I think we can move on from golf. I yeah. hope you've enjoyed the amount of golf that I've allowed you to talk about over the last like month. I feel like I have to just be like done for the year now. Like no more golf for like a year. <laughs> and that's that's fine. We have talked a lot of golf. I've given you so much airtime. John, I don't have a whole lot to say about the NBA Finals other than the Warriors were better and the Boston Celtics look really fatigued and it just like stopped being competitive after game four. Let's yeah, I mean, they they had a difficult playoff run, to be fair. Multiple game that seven required a lot of required a lot of comebacks. And, you know, that does take a toll on you just from a simple energy perspective, obviously. And running out of gas in the finals is something that has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they had a much tougher road to the finals than the Warriors did. There's they had two seven-game series where the, the Warriors did, I don't believe, had any seven-game series. I don't remember. Um, I don't think they did. They may have had one. But I think, and then, you know, the, the Celtics jump out to this big 2-1 lead. They take game one, they take game three. And it feels like they kind of, like, went for the punch early and then kind of got tired out by the end. You know, it, it's very hard to chase Steph Curry and Klay Thompson around a basketball court for six games. Um, that's that's not a task that I could do or that many people could do. So I think this was a war of attrition and the Warriors proved to be um, a little bit more fresh and a little bit uh, healthier and it worked out for them um, despite Draymond Green not playing well at all. I believe through like four games, he had more turnover, or I'm sorry, more personal fouls than points through at least the first four games of the finals. 
So he he did not play well, but other players stepped up and it worked out pretty well for him. So yeah, I saw Steph. Uh, he uh, his uh, made a three pointer in a game record came to an end finally, mm. which yeah. is always is always wild. It was up to I think his, he had made one in every game since like 2018 or something. Game five at the finals, he did make one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. and they still not won that game. One. They did still win that game. He. The rest of the team compensated for his lack of shooting ability. Yeah. That's not no, a joke. I mean, Andrew Wiggins did play well <laughs> in that game, but I don't have a whole lot more to say about this. It felt like a pretty un, like uninteresting finals. There wasn't like a really like standout performance. Everyone talked about Curry's game four, which was good, but like he was fine. Mm-hmm. He was There was no one who was like great. And I, I think, think it was part, what's been – oh, go ahead. I was gonna say I think part of that is that this has been it, it was defined as a very defensive finals, which is not the most exciting type of basketball, but it's good basketball. Right. Yeah, I was just gonna say I think much more exciting in the current basketball world news is that Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith are having some kind of drama play out across the entirety of social media. Do we want to talk about this or do we? <laughs> I don't like. I don't know anything about. I just like. I just. I heard about it yesterday, and I was like, "What is going on? Do you like? Have you read deeply into this?" I mean, I was a big first take guy back in the day, so I I know. Right. I remember. I I know Skip and Stephen A. and their camaraderie. What I will say is that if you're going to have a feud with someone, um, this is the type of feud to have because even in their statements about each other, they both continue to call each other my brother. So, like, clearly, like, this, their, their relationship is not in jeopardy. And this is just, like, you know, right. they're, they're disagreeing in, in love, I guess, because they're, like, this is my brother and I'm, I'm hurt, but also I love him. And so, like, yeah, we support... We support mature men handling things maturely, and I hope this story goes away quickly. As maturely as Stephen A. can handle anything. That's but. correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, do you want to take a take a break here, and then we'll get to our, our big story, and then do some pop culture at the end? I agree. Let's All do right. It. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more about the you know, it's been three months since the war in Ukraine, and there's been a lot of uh, sports stories along those lines that we're going to talk about right after this break. And we are back on Crunching Tackles with the big story this week. John, we haven't talked about a whole lot about the situation in Ukraine in recent weeks. Obviously, like, the war is still ongoing. From what I've been hearing and reading, it's been taking kind of a turn for the worse for Ukraine, as Russia has taken uh, a significant amount of cities in the east part of the country. But there are some sporting stories to talk about here. Where do you want to kind of start with this? Yeah, I think... I think there are a lot of directions we can go with this. You know, we haven't really touched on the way that sports in Ukraine has been affected uh, by the war, obviously, just because when we last talked about it, there were a lot of questions kind of regarding just the jeopardy that the nation of Ukraine was in as a whole. You know, it definitely seemed, I guess we talked about it in the first week or so, there was a strong potential that at least it seemed to us that like the entirety of the country could be annexed, which doesn't seem very probable at this point at all. Um, you know, obviously they're, they have lost a lot of territory, but Russia seems to have largely moved its focus to just taking over the separatist regions in Eastern Ukraine and the Donbass. Um, and, you know, obviously the war is still claiming a lot of lives and displacing people, but it does seem that I wouldn't say the situation has stabilized, obviously, but it does seem like the territory taken from Ukraine may be less than maybe we originally feared. Um, and so that's kind of given Ukraine the opportunity to begin restoring, you know, a little bit of, I guess you could, you could call wartime normalcy. And so there have been a lot of stories, you know, I think that we can talk about regarding, regarding displacement, regarding refugees, um, but also, you know, on the bright side of things, you know, after shutting down the Ukrainian Premier League, and I guess when the war started, um, the government, along with 
in in discussions with the Ukrainian Premier League have kind of decided that they're going to be able to bring the league back in August. And I think that is kind of a mark of, you know, them saying, you know, I think we'll be able to pull this out and it's good to have a sports league around to, you know, keep spirits up. Are they saying that they're going to play it in Ukraine? Is that the current plan? Mm -hmm. That is the, they, so they haven't officially said where they're going to play the games, but you know my understanding from the brief statements that have been released um, by the president of the Ukrainian FA, who has talked with Zelensky about you know resuming the league, that they feel that you know it's enough of a non-safety risk that they're going to be able to play in Ukraine again. Obviously in in the West, but. Mm in certain areas that I don't think they've said yet, but they do feel like it won't be outside in a different country as far as I understand. And then um, you know, thinking about other countries, either Ukrainians who have fled or, or other people who have provided aid, You, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the refugees as well and the way that they've impacted sports in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, obviously in any kind of war situation like this you you have all kinds of different people fleeing the country right and that includes you know athletes when we talked about when the whole situation in afghanistan happened you know there were people trying to help you know afghani athletes like the afghani uh, women's soccer team like there was a huge like movement basically to help them escape the country because they we feared that you know their safety would be at risk and so you know there there have been similar kind of not exact parallels, but situations, you know, with helping athletes kind of leave the country and be able to, you know, find an opportunity to train again. I was reading an article in, um, I believe the German German uh, news agency, DW, talking about, um, you know, helping Ukrainian soccer teams move over to Germany and like youth academies and stuff and like be able to train with other local teams and stuff and you know train on a pitch and kind of have that ability to be able to continue like a semi normal existence you know even yeah. as their as their country's occupied um so you know i think it's been it's been cool to see first of all just the the sports community kind of lift up the ukrainian sports community and come alongside them and support them there has been a couple teams dinamo kiev and shakhtar donetsk have both done kind of like tours around Europe playing various like European teams through charity games um, as did the and, national you know, team mm -hmm. and Ukrainian fans have been able to come and they basically raise money at those games and you know basically it's just an opportunity for people to both give money towards the Ukrainian cause and also you know just bring Ukrainian fans around Europe together uh, mm -hmm. and I think there's just been a lot of stuff like that that you know though it doesn't like affect the war situation at all you know it's been it's been unique to see those kind of situations unfold and know that like it's giving both refugees and expats and people at home a little bit of hope yeah and I think that hope kind of culminated in in the the qualifying for the World Cup that Ukraine went through. Mm -hmm. They played two games. They won the first one before losing to Wales in the, in the you know, with the chance to go to the World Cup. And, you know, from the scenes, from the stadium, from the, the large section of Ukrainian fans to the the unity by both countries around the national anthem to the to the mm -hmm. grace with which the, the coaches and players handled victory and defeat, it really was um, a moment of brilliance for that country. Um, a moment of unity, a moment of pride, a moment where Ukraine handled themselves so well and other countries, be it Scotland and Wales, also rallied to the cause to show support. I even saw in a in an under-21 game, uh, Edward Kamavinga from France gifted every uh, Ukrainian player a uh, France like, jersey and from the U-21 team to, to, just to offer support mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, from the, from the national team perspective, there's been a huge showing of support, even with the sadness of them not qualifying for the World Cup, which I know we wanted to talk about a little bit. I know I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think everything we heard about that Wales-Ukraine game just kind of served as serves as like as a reminder of what sports can be, just in general, um, like international sports, but also like specifically in a time like this. Like we've talked a lot about the negative impacts of sports on 
the political world and vice versa and how, you know, bad acting countries try to use sports toward their own ends. But I think it was unique to see, you know, Welsh and Ukrainian fans kind of standing there together and celebrating each other and recognizing like, you know, in this very difficult time for the nation of Ukraine and in this opportunity where like it is a competitive game and Wales obviously wants to qualify for the World Cup as does Ukraine, and they're not just going to let Ukraine walk over them in that situation. You know, I think it was it was cool to see that entire stadium stadium kind of unified in like recognizing like yeah, this is just a game, but in in many senses, we're here to support each other through this kind of circumstance. And I think that's like just like a wholesome a wholesome sports moment that we don't necessarily always get. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I, I was thinking about how bummed I was that, that they didn't win um, against mm-hmm. Wales. And I, I, I can't speak for anyone else. I was just speaking, like, thinking about, like, how would I feel? And I guess, like, if I was a... If, if Ukraine had played America with a chance to go to the World Cup, like, I guess what I'm saying is if I could trade... If I could offer the, the USA's spot in the World Cup to Ukraine, I think I would. Mm. Just with the understanding that, like, those people kind of need it more than I do. And I, you know, yeah. I can't speak for for Wales or for anyone else, but I, it just made me really sad. Not just because of, you know, the the hope that it would give the, the that country and those fans to have something to really look forward to come November, but also just like the shot in the face it would be for the Russian regime that that is make, basically making the argument that Ukraine is not a separate country and have no national pride or national independence, and they're just they're they're not a country. And so mm-hmm. to see that country compete in the World Cup would have been, I think, really, really special. Yeah, I think it, it, it definitely is a bummer. Um, and it would have just been, it would have been a unique moment and maybe a, a, a nice moment of political goodness amidst a World Cup that is largely <laughs> going to be dominated also by bad faith actors. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because we're going to end by talking a little mm-hmm. bit about Brittany Griner, which we haven't talked about. But, you know, I was thinking about what FIFA did in, in banning Russia from the World Cup, and you and I talked about this a little bit, John, and I don't know if you quite agree with me, but I was, I was just thinking about the idea that if a governing body over a sport can punish a, a soccer team for the actions of their government, then why can't they reward a soccer team to show support? So, like, if you're going to ban, like, if they have the power to ban Russia from, from qualifying for the World Cup... And I, and I right. think we all, most people agree that they do, well, they do have that power and that it was a good thing to do. Why couldn't you just automatically qualify Ukraine to the World Cup, given, given like the, the, the extenuating circumstances, understanding what that would mean to the fans of that country, like as a show of worldwide support for this country, like why, why wouldn't, I don't know. And I, mm-hmm. I've just been thinking about like, I know that's, I don't think that's ever happened before that I know of. But I was just thinking about why they wouldn't do that and if, if they could and if that would be right. And it was something that's been interesting to me for the last week, just thinking about hmm. continuing to be sad that they're not going to be there and, and wondering, like, well, what could we do to, 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 to get them there? And I was just thinking, like, why couldn't they just qualify them? Yeah, I think so. Obviously, I would love to see them there, too. I think in my mind, thinking about that question, you know, I, I, think, I think qualifying a team is different from banning a team like in my in my mind you have a sports competition and a ban is saying you are no longer eligible to compete in that competition but there's no like there's no circumstance in which the competition itself is removed i guess in which in my mind like qualifying someone above another team based not on sporting merit is like canceling out the effects of the competition i guess rather than just removing someone so i don't i don't know like just in terms of it kind of did right because whoever russia was supposed so there's a two round playoffs and whoever russia you know so you normally would have to win two games poland i think yeah Yeah. so normally you have to win two games to make the world cup and poland only had to win one because they they were automatically you know bumped over russia so like already there's like a little bit of Sport, you know, Poland only had to do half the work to get there. Right. That everyone that else true. did. So that is true. I think I think that's valid. I think I think my primary issue comes down like say in this circumstance, Wales was in Ukraine's path to qualification. You'd basically be leapfrogging Wales. I think 
if there was some way in which like Wales agreed to it, I think maybe that maybe that would be okay. So, but I don't. Two, I feel like it's like going over Wales's head to me feels wrong. I don't know. The two things that I was thinking about would be one, yeah, if, if Wales agreed to it, or B, yeah. if you knew. And this is this would be like very very conniving, and this is just my evil mind at work. <laughs> but if you knew, if you knew that you were going to ban Russia, let Russia compete, and then if they qualify, give Russia's spot to Ukraine. That and is conniving, but like, what it, if they didn't qualify? Then, then it wouldn't matter. Then you just wouldn't give it right. To but them. then but, Ukraine wouldn't be there, right? But I guess the idea is like, are you? Who would you? Who who are you punishing to give Ukraine the spot? If you're punishing right. Russia, well, you're already punishing Russia anyway. But if you're punishing right. Wales, or yeah, that's obviously like a, a more nuanced and harder harder case to make. I guess the point is that even in the Russia ban, it wasn't just Russia who was rewarded or punished. You know, Poland mm-hmm. was also rewarded. So so these decisions are not just made to impact one team only. And we don't know how many of these Russian players, you know, why, why are we punishing the Russian players for the actions of the Russian president? You know, we talked about that in terms of like the bans at Wimbledon and things like that. And ultimately I think the the overall consensus is that, that that is the right thing to do because it does send a message to the government. But if you can punish, I think that you could at least consider a worldwide show of support through offering a World Cup spot. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting kind of tangentially the way we talk about sporting bands mm-hmm. you know it is very you know like this the, the the russia ban was largely pretty popular people are like this is a unacceptable war this is not okay ban them you know and there's been very little like backlash against that which is fine but i do think it's interesting that those bans aren't really applied very consistently necessarily with large-scale human rights abuses that's correct you know we need look no further you know i wouldn't say that that qatar's regime is doing the same things that russia's regime is you know but we are pretty fully aware of what china's regime is doing we are very aware of what north korea's regime is doing well i think a different example Um, is the idea that like Saudi Arabia has been doing to Yemen what Russia has been mm-hmm. doing to Ukraine for multiple years now. And, and, they, been no, and they were like, allowed to never qualify. Cry. They, they were allowed to yeah, try there's to There's never qualify. been an outcry. Yeah, right. I think they're at the World Cup. I think they're did, they, did they qualify? Yeah. Yeah. So like that, I mean, that's that's a more like, that's, that's a more apples to apples comparison. The fact that they are like actively invading mm-hmm. and bombing another sovereign country. Right. And there's just no, there's no like discussion of that there's no like oh saudi arabia shouldn't be allowed to compete in Mm -hmm. the world football situation you know so i don't know i i on the one hand understand and like i think agree with the arguments that people make regarding the ban not of individual russian athletes but of the like the national team as a whole during this period but i don't know like the logic is definitely not applied consistently and that in my mind is is strange and does seem like it's just like whatever is like an in vogue popular decision like there's an outcry for this and fifa's like oh we gotta we gotta ban them to make sure we don't get in trouble you know but they're not really like applying some kind of universal set of rules regarding who they think is worthy of competing in like international sports i don't i don't love that honestly no no one could be no one could accuse fifa of actually leading like they're they're no, following absolutely not they're they're <laughs> reacting fifa are not a leading body in terms of like Social Which the IOC or, is the same, right? right? So it's not surprising. It's a reaction, and the reaction is often, yeah, not not equated equally in all circumstances. John, briefly before we before we move out of sports, I we have not talked about Brittany Griner's detention, and this is something that happened back in a while, while at least. I don't think have we talked about it at all. I thought we did touch on it a little bit. Maybe I just could be tangentially, but I don't, we yeah. certainly haven't given much time to it. Um, and there was a reason why. This happened all the way back in March, and you know, early on, um, the general understanding in these kind of situations is that you don't, is that people who have microphones and people who are talking don't really talk about these kind of situations at least for a while because, basically, the the idea from from what I think from what Brittany Griner's family was thinking as well as the U.S. government was that if you if you put a magnifying glass on the situation, that only makes Brittany Griner a more valuable possession for the not to speak of a person as a possession, but a more valuable asset for the Russian government to have in terms of like a hostage exchange or in terms of getting her back. 
the more public outcry and the more valuable she appears and the more the more not having her back might undermine the State Department or the president, that that's a dangerous situation for her, for her safety, because then she gets viewed as a political prisoner who has immense value to Russia. And so for the at least the first month and a half of this, the U.S. government and the families were strongly encouraging people to not talk about this. The U.S. Mm-hmm. government were very conscious to never speak her name, like U.S. government officials, so that, so that they couldn't be, you know, have their have their videos clipped and then posted in Russian on Russian TV with them saying her name. So it was all very, very low profile. And that's changed in the past month or so, where we've seen both the U.S. government as well as the entire NBA and WNBA uh, family, as well as Brittany Griner's personal family, speaking out about this more openly, more uh, frequently, and uh, demanding her return. She has now been classified by the U.S. as wrongfully detained by the State Department. We know that she will continue to be in detention until at least July 2nd. Uh, mm-hmm. That date has been extended many times. So there, there's no reason to think that she will be out of there on July 2nd. That date has been extended at least three or four times. So, um, again, there's not a whole lot we know about the situation. But mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of, like, why we haven't talked about it and why it's okay to talk about it now, that's kind of just a brief explainer on the interests of the government as well as the interests of her family in, in getting her home. Right. Obviously, the, the situation... The very bad diplomatic situation between the U.S. and Russia means that this is very difficult to negotiate right now. You know, even if she was detained under normal circumstances, it might be difficult, but this obviously makes it that much harder. There has been, you know, like I was reading a BBC article about the situation. There's been like a lot of outcry about like from, you know, your average like Twitter complainers talking about how like, you know, this is just proof that people like just don't care about her. Because she's a WNBA star and not like some kind of massive NBA star. Because apparently, I didn't know much about her, but I didn't. She's like one of the biggest stars in the WNBA, right? I mean, in my opinion, she's the best WNBA player. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's obviously like a pretty big deal, and people have been saying like, "Oh, no one's talking about this." That was intentional, right? And as you said, was something that people like wanted to happen to avoid getting too much public like focus on her so at, that at, at times or at most in most times the twitter warriors don't really know what's up um and this is just another example of that but you know it is obviously a situation where the pressure does need to be ramped up but obviously russia like i think the problem here is that there's very little pressure we can exert on russia right now beyond what we're already doing on an international perspective like russia is actively at war with basically a U.S. ally. Yeah. Like, that is not a situation where you can be like, ooh, you know, like, you need to stop misbehaving. Like, Russia is misbehaving in the worst possible ways right now. So, it, you know, trying to keep a WNBA star safe, as safe as she can be, I think was probably a smart play. Yeah, I think this is, there's not a whole lot that people who just talk can do about her situation. This is now really right. up, to, up to the governments to get this resolved eventually. I think something that is interesting to talk about, and I think we talked about this briefly, but um, just the idea that something that people now can address here in these United States is why are WNBA players being paid so little in the WNBA that they have to go play internationally to make more money in mm-hmm. the off season, whether they're playing in China or Russia um, as Brittany Griner was, you know, that's something that the WNBA could fix today if they wanted to, by right. saying we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna set these ladies up with enough money that they do not have to go seek other opportunities overseas in potentially hostile environments to make enough money to live because we are not paying them enough. That's something that can be fixed now and should be. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting. This is now now two different sports, right? We're talking about like. Just like complete lack of competitive pay is causing these, you know, just general problems in the sporting world, which is like it's seen like underpaid professional athletes is such an interesting topic because obviously like in the big sports that we think about, a lot of the time we're like these athletes are paid way too much. Mm-hmm. But then you see like how it's being mismatched around the rest of the sports world. And I think it, it creates a lot of interesting dilemmas. Yeah, I think a lot of times we see the top salaries, but we don't really see mm-hmm. the bottom. I mean, even in the MLB, we've talked about that. Yeah. We all know what Patrick Mahomes makes, but there are people on that roster who 
who might not make even a hundred thousand dollars, right? Like they're, yeah, that's, it's, it's just a different world that some of these people live in. And mm-hmm. so, and that's still, you know, obviously that's a lot of money, but when you factor in also like the different lifestyle that a professional athlete has to have with personal trainers and equipment and dieting, like their cost of life, because just to invest into their body is a, is a lot of money as well. So it's not just like, oh, they make six figures so they can afford everything. Not when you're dieting and personal training. Like, yeah, this is a different life. And so we often see the, the top numbers, the, the Max Scherzer contract, the Patrick Mahomes contract, the LeBron James contract. And, you know, like, again, just stunning to see that there's a professional golfer on the PGA Tour who made $20,000. Like, that, that, yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest example to me. But there are other examples like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Any other sports thoughts, John? And then we've got a little bit of content to talk about here. No, we end. need we need to move on to the pop culture. Chop okay. chop. Yeah, we've got about like 15, 20 minutes left. So let's talk about some pop culture. Um, we didn't talk about Kenobi last week, but I think we can talk about it this week <laughs> because we episode week. five of Kenobi was, I'm going to say, by far the best in the series so far. It was awesome. I would agree. I would agree. Um, it was really, really, really good. We saw Darth Vader. Who was who was so good in that episode? We saw a, you know a, a, a blaster fight with with uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. We saw Reva. Uh, we also got a little bit more info on her story, um, mm-hmm. kind of what I thought at the beginning when we saw the uh, black girl Jedi uh, apprentice Padawan youngling, youngling in the Jedi Temple, youngling, youngling in the Jedi Temple, and uh, you know that ended up being Reva as I as I suspected from the beginning, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you kind of want to? Is there anything that stood out to you in this episode that you um, want to talk about? Uh, Vader pulling the ship down. Mm-hmm. That was it. That I, did, I was. I only. That's the scene I'll remember from this from this episode and from this show. Really, I, I too. I, <laughs> I too wanted to talk about Vader, not just because of the ship scene, which was amazing, but um, he was going to confront Obi Wan Kenobi. He ended up fighting mm-hmm. Reva instead, but. He didn't bring his lightsaber. Did he not? He never opened his I lightsaber. I was wondering. I was wondering why he took Reva's. I don't. He he, he may have had. I mean, his, he didn't. He did not take his out. That's he never for sure. used his lightsaber. You're right. He he yes. he just used the force to disarm Reva and then beat her with her own lightsaber. Like the blatant disrespect how he su- demonstrated throughout the entire fight was incredible. How supremely confident must you be in your own abilities to go to a Jedi fight without a lightsaber? That's amazing. That's amazing to me. He yeah, it was it was tremendous quite honestly. I'm loving I'm loving Vader in the show. I think honestly, I'm I'll say it. For me, the best part of the show is Vader. I understand the show is about Kenobi, but our boy Hayden Christensen is kind of is kind of starring it up. I'm not even gonna lie. He's he's all awesome. the best parts of the show has been about Darth Vader. And the flashback was so good. That was really good. The I flashback. There's so much of the entire arc of Star Wars that is explained through that flashback scene. Do you wanna mm-hmm. do you wanna understand why Anakin was so intent on proving that he could jump farther than Obi Wan and get the higher ground on Mustafar? Just watch mm-hmm. that training sequence. Like everything yeah. you need to know about Anakin, about Darth Vader, was displayed in that lightsaber duel, which was an amazing duel. It was choreographed mm-hmm. brilliantly. It was, it was the best thing I've seen in this show, and it was one of the better things I've seen in Star Wars television. It was an incredible it was, sequence. It was really funny seeing both of them like in like a flashback. But clearly old. Oh yeah, they didn't de-age him. He <laughs> that was, was just hilarious. he was they just did, forty. He was just old. And I'll be honest, <laughs> like I did not care. No, I didn't care either. But it was really a really funny look. You just see how old he looks in comparison. You're like, bruh, you are. You're looking a little worn down, my guy. They spent all their money on de-aging Luke Skywalker and in uh, Boba Fett. They didn't have anything left for Anakin. I mean, at least he's still like moderately like Luke. Mark Hamill looks right, way too old, right. obviously, to do those scenes anymore. No, he definitely like, looked Hayden like a forty-year-old apprentice, but it was fun. yeah, like <laughs> like the wrinkles in his face and whatever. I was like, "Bruh, what do you think about the Reva twist?" I you mentioned I it being know. surprising it. to you, which I, I, I didn't I, see. It didn't it seem surprising to me, so I was curious about that. Like it made sense, obviously, when she was like, "Oh, I'm doing this." I think it makes honestly, it makes more sense for her character than like the kind of like motivations she seemed to be espousing before 
that being said, I don't know. I still, I thought it was a good twist for a character. I'm still like, I just, it has, her arc has not quite hit the notes for me. I understand like that's like been like a controversial thing and I'm not like touching any of that stuff. Right. By right. any means. Right. But I don't know. It, it just, her character arc feels, it, it has felt forced to me at times in the way it's been like drawn out. I did like that twist. But I don't know. I don't know. Like, what have what have you thought about the way they've developed her? We haven't really gone into depth with that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's sad that I have to now clarify that when I'm a, when I'm critiquing a character, I'm not attacking a person due to the, you know, the yeah. the, the racist things that have been going on. But um, I think that her dis I I believed her in her feeling abandoned by the Jedi and, and why she takes that out on Kenobi. That part right. makes sense to me. Her whole idea of like I hate Anakin, and so I'm gonna become an Inquisitor and serve him for ten years, made less sense to me. Like I'm I'm going to hunt down and kill Jedi children because I hate Darth Vader. There's I think there's a yeah couple, when she a felt couple, abandoned yeah right, there's a couple dots missing there. Um, like because she seems so scared when she's like finally talking to Kenobi. But I'm like, bruh, you've literally just been going around murdering people. Right. Like, and you were clearly did not care about killing civilians. Yeah. So I was like, I, yeah, it just doesn't like, it doesn't fully match up to me. And like, I don't understand like really where her character is coming from. I think that's part of the problem. And I, I also understand that part of the Star Wars canon is that like the Inquisitors are also like not very good, but like she got clowned. Like <laughs> she did was, get absolutely clapped. <laughs> it was actually disrespectful. What 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 happened to her? <laughs> like with Vader, like dodging the lightsaber, <laughs> like he wasn't even moving. Basically, not only was he not moving, but like he beat her with, with just the force for like the first twenty five seconds. He didn't have a lightsaber. It was amazing. Yeah, like, 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 which is like I I would like to say Vader is obviously like so powerful in comparison to basically every other Star right, Wars character. Right, uh, that is understandable. But, but I guess I'm saying they haven't made her complex, but they also really like didn't make her that lethal, and so she's just no. kind of there. I do want to yeah, give. Yeah, it just feels kind of weak. Yeah, yeah. I do want to give know. my MVP award for the series to Vivian Lyra Blair, who is a a ten year old actress born in two thousand and twelve, who That's is horrifying. Just killing it, just killing it as young Leia. I, yes, it's been it's been really good. She is a delight. She is so good in that role. I mean, you, know, you can she argue feels so whether much younger she's than ten. Yeah, you could argue whether she's doing. With they've written too much in her character, like she's she's doing a lot. I did enjoy because I'm a I'm a big Lego Star Wars fan, and everyone who plays Lego Star Wars knows that every character has an ability, and there are certain characters whose only contribution is to crawl into small spaces, like uh like there's like uh, there's like Padawan or there's like there's like Episode One Anakin or an Ewok, and you you only switch to them when you need to crawl into a small space. And so when they said the grid's too small, we need someone. I was like. This, I feel seen as a as a Lego Star Wars fan because they know exactly why they needed Leia in this episode. It was great. I loved it. I loved that. Yeah, no, she's been a delight. There better be a good Kenobi Vader duel at the end. Mm. That's there, really all I'm asking be. for I in episode six. That's I kind of it's. That's been the other interesting thing for me with this show. I did like this episode. It does feel like I don't know what we're building up to. Also, how did Reva survive that lightsaber? That's the other question. We know that when you get clear stabbed, that she did. Stomachs, st <clears throat> stomachs aren't fatal. We know that. But like, I feel like this is not like normal in Star Wars most of the time. Yeah. Like Darth Maul survived being cut in half. That obviously happened. Right. But like, I mean, Qui Gon died. Was that just? Was he that just got just stabbed stomach? through. Yeah. Yeah, he just got stabbed. I mean, that's like that's basically lethal. You bleed out. I don't know. The Grand Inquisitor somehow survived that. Now Reva survived that. I'm like, interesting. All right, John. But go, yes, that's go off of, on we have other things, things to talk about. Go off on Stranger, Stranger things. things. is so good. I took six years to watch this show. It is now probably in my top five shows of all time, if not higher. I've, it's been an absolute delight. I finally caught up on season four. Everything that I've complained about with any TV show that we've discussed in the last like year is just not true about Stranger Things. The characters are great. The writing is great. The budget allows them to like actually have a believable universe. Nothing feels forced. I adore basically every single character. No, that's not true. That is not true. 
I do not adore every single character in Stranger Things, but I adore most of them. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hate Mike. What this show does well, it does perfectly. Which That's correct. Is one the they have figured out the chemistry of characters that mm-hmm. is that is amazing. The the they've they have selectively you know this season they have divided the characters into four groups, and some groups work better than others. We'll say, but. The groups that are the strongest are the ones where they just understand, oh, these characters work well together. Correct. Dustin and Steve. Robin and Steve. Erica and anyone. Like, there, there are certain characters that just work. Um, mm-hmm. And there are certain characters that don't work well together. For example, Mike and Eleven. So let's, let's get them separated <laughs> as quickly as possible, which they did. And the second thing is just, it, it's, it's a masterpiece of special effects. Like, I know the budget's mm-hmm. high, but it, it's brilliantly brilliantly edited brilliant it just feels yeah, yeah it just feels believable yeah. it's a, it's a fantastical world that is like has a lot of weird looking stuff but it feels like how it would actually look if all that stuff was real right july 1st john it's coming up we'll have the finale of season I four i am so excited i don't know it i don't like we don't have to go into a deep review of it but it was just it's it's really good you should watch it if you haven't seen it yet maybe we can talk about it. it a little bit more next week leading up to the finale and then we can mm. we can recap the finale afterward yes John, I, I want to talk a couple minutes about Top Gun Maverick, which you've now seen. Um, I have seen it. This was my this is my favorite movie that I've seen. I think in a while. This is you know I I gave it a perfect movie score. It's in my top fifteen favorite movies of all time, which is tremendous. And and then what happens is that every time that I read an article or watch a video about the making of it, I like it even more. Mm-hmm. Like when I learned that Ed Harris actually took a. Uh, uh, a wave of like like when that when the dark star flew over him as the admiral like that was all real mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. I learned that Miles Teller was hospitalized and they found trace amounts of jet fuel in his bloodstream like <laughs> everything about this show I'm, I'm sorry everything about mm-hmm. this movie and when you learn just how much craft went into it you just appreciate mm-hmm. it more and there is so much to appreciate it's it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking and it's a heartfelt story it's a simple story that works every emotional beat is perfect from Val Kilmer to the ending and then the special effects and the 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 practical effects the practical effects are just absurd they're absurd yeah so it was good. just it was just a fun movie honestly mm-hmm. you know i don't know if i would put it in my top 15 it, the, our our rankings may be a little bit different there That's but fine. it was just i had a it was a 5 five out of five movie experience for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. i sat there and i literally some of those flying sequences had me on the ed, like yeah. on the veritable edge of my seat like gripping gripping my armrests i was like <gasps> because they're like flipping I, th- that was one of the most remarkable things to me was when they're like jimmying in the in the cave not mm-hmm. in the cave in the in the valley mm-hmm. how like aggressive some of the flying has to be at that low of an altitude where they're like shifting back and forth constantly like it's so high octane we'll just yeah. just put it that way it, the, yeah. the the scene where my favorite scene of the movie i think was where they are uh when tom cruise gets fired and they uh from the from the training program and he decides to do the run himself i think that was the best scene in the movie it's it's by far the best scene I, i've seen this movie three times and i've cried twice each time so the, and so the emotional that's a total of six times hit me just as hard guys. the third time as I do <laughs> as I did the first time. So it really does work. That's a mark of a good movie. Briefly, John, I saw uh, I saw Lightyear, which I really, really, really enjoyed. Lightyear is a, a Pixar Toy Story based movie, but it is also an homage to every good sci-fi franchise or sci-fi movie that has ever happened. You will watch this movie and you will think of Star Wars and you will think of The Martian and you will think of Interstellar and you will think of A Space Odyssey. It is a legitimate, it's like sci-fi action movie, but but it is Pixar. And it does really, really well in that. And my side note about Lightyear is um, Michael Giacchino has now done five different Pixar scores that are probably the five best Pixar scores in addition to doing like everything else he does. And like he... he I think John Williams is obviously an untouchable when it comes to the scores, but Michael Giacchino is is the man right now. He is the yeah, he's doing the some, guy. doing some really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I hope has he won an Oscar yet? I can't remember. I think he will this year. 
for the Batman. Oh, that's right. I think um, you will. Yeah, I will. Uh, Thomas Newman's Finding Nemo is also untouchable. It's a good score. That's yeah. a good score. Okay, so so after some after some research, he did win the Oscar for Up in 2009. Okay, but l- listen to this. The best original score. He did the score for Ratatouille, mm-hmm. Up, Coco, mm-hmm. yep. and The Incredibles. Which is very good. And now light and good. now Lightyear. The, he he and then he he also does Spider Man. He also does you know Bat the Batman. He yeah he's he's on top of the world right now. He's so good. But the movie mm-hmm. is also excellent. If you like sci fi and if you like the classic sci-fi some of like the best sci-fi movies this movie works for you i promise i had i had a good time i had a really really good time very nice i may see it at some point probably not until it comes out on disney plus that's fine let me let me say this john most pixar movies are just as good on the small screen as the big screen this is this is not this is not that one no this one you know this is this is a this is a spaceship space sounds in like this is like it's a mix of Top Gun, Maverick, Interstellar, and Star Wars. That's what it is. So did what you this feel like it was is. necessary? Did you feel like it was necessary to make this movie? I know you're a big Buzz Lightyear guy, so you're a little bit biased. But when they announced it, I was like, I mean, define we, define do necessary. We need this? Like, <laughs> it's not possible. There it's are a necessary. lot of movies that people don't think are necessary. That like, no one thought Toy Story three was necessary. And Toy Story three is as good of a Pixar movie as Pixar's ever made this movie was not necessary but that does not mean that it didn't work in a big way like like if this okay. movie had not happened okay. would it would it have made me a, like did this unlock the key to toy story no but did this movie mm-hmm. like really really work for me yeah it okay. did okay yes it okay. did <laughs> respectable and it, respectable and it starts with the premise the premise of the movie is in 1995 andy went to see a movie and fell in love with this character named buzz lightyear and bought a Buzz Lightyear action figure, or got one for his birthday, and this is that movie that Andy went to see in 1995. And if that's I the see. mindset you're going into it, if you're a 10-year-old boy in 1995 sitting in the big screen, and you are watching this movie, it works. It really, really see, does See, I support, I support approaching movies like a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know I do. It's amazing. Um, I, had mm-hmm. a, I, I had a really good time, so that's, that's all I have to say. Nice. What's your other recommendation? Oh, uh, this is a, also an animated movie. It's called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. It is by A24, which is the studio that did everything everywhere all at once. Marcel started out oh, okay. as a as a YouTube short, a series of YouTube shorts. It's um it's voiced by Jenny Slate, who most notably played Mona Lisa on the recurring sitcom Parks and Recreation. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's uh, directed by and co-starred by another guy who helped write the character. Um, it is as wholesome and pure of an animated kids movie as I have ever seen. My brother and I went to pre-screen it at Alamo and it really blew me away. The story is about, you know, uh, living life and dealing with loss and grief and finding community as this little animated shell. And, you know, thinking about it in terms of like COVID, there's this moving scene about, you know, not being able to say the proper farewell, like being able to say goodbye to family members. Like it really was very, very moving. Um, And it was, it was, yeah, it was really, really good. It was, it's an animated shell that is saying things that you could think came from Mr. Rogers or Ted Lasso, but it's mm-hmm. but it's but it's a kids movie and it's really really good. Cool. So well, I shall we'll, we'll we'll add those to the list. Yeah, that's Movie Corner with Chad. That's all I have. I like I like Chad's Movie Corner. Okay. I, I also saw Jurassic I World Dominion, which is not worth it. So don't waste. <laughs> yeah, I I d- didn't intend on seeing it. Okay. So. <laughs> it's my least was favorite of any thought... Jurassic movie. Oh no. That includes Jurassic Park three. It, yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. No, that's an atrocity. I'm not yeah. particularly surprised, but I gave it two and a half stars. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. There's only so many dino movies you can make before they become all the same. I think my problem with this movie is that there weren't enough dinosaurs. Actually, <laughs> you're telling me that there's a movie about dinosaurs taking over the United States and there weren't enough dinosaurs. Not nearly. There were, that was, is deeply disappointing. The primary villain, spoiler alert, were these genetically altered giant locusts. No. Yeah, it didn't it really didn't work. That 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 it didn't work. That's an L. They went away from the from the formula. The formula is maximum is dinosaurs, dinosaurs, and they didn't do yeah. that. They didn't do. <laughs> Imagine making a Jurassic World movie with not enough dinosaurs. They didn't do dinosaurs. Like that's I, a profound. My mistake. brother and I talked about how like we were. Exp- I'm, this podcast is not going too long, but my brother and I were talking about how like we were we were describing to each other the scenes that would have made this movie good. Like get a famous artist and like do a fake concert and then have dinosaurs come like trampling through the concert. Like like exactly. What does it look like for dinosaurs to be in real life? 
That question is never asked, nor is it answered. That is the most lame thing I've ever heard. I had a bad time. <laughs> That's so disappointing. <laughs> like... <laughs> No, that's that's an L. Yeah, that's an L. But you know, you win some, you lose some. This was a, this was an L. But I could have told you that that would be the case before that movie. I think I did, but it's okay. I I checked my heart rate afterward, and like, if nothing else, Jurassic World knows how to like build suspense. Even like Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, like which is not a good movie, still has very scary dinosaurs and very tense sequences. My heart rate never went up. My heart rate was a Aww. flat line the entire movie. Oh, just just not a good time. Anyway, that's lame. That's all I have to say we should, about we that. Yeah. Let, the, let the listeners go. Okay. Any any final thoughts? Do you have any recommendations before we get out of here? Stranger Things. Okay. I feel like this podcast has kind of gone off the rails. That's mostly my fault. <laughs> my apologies. If you have stuck to this point, uh, much appreciation to you. We will be back next week with another podcast. And until then, you can make sure to interact with us on social media. You can like and subscribe. You know the things. We're all we all know how podcasts work now. I don't need to explain this again. So until next week, be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys.